Howdy. Welcome to Sunday at Dallas Comic Show. Let's hear a little bit of energy. Yeah. That was, hey, that didn't take a lot of effort. So uh, we've got Mr. Billy West. He'll come in in just a moment. My name is Moises. I do a few podcasts, one of them called Electric Shadow, which the audio from this Q&A is going to work its way into an episode of because I've been looking forward to interviewing, speaking with, being in the same room with Billy West uh, probably my whole life. Uh, so, uh, so before he gets in, I'm just going to say, if I have a panic attack and die, just act like nothing's happening. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, let's welcome in Mr. Billy West. Hi, you guys. Wow. You know what held me up is a vampire chick just grabbed me and started biting my neck. Cosplayers get aggressive. One of us. <laughs> How are you guys? Everything good? Get a million questions. Um, well, I like being here because I get to talk to everybody and I get to say hi to everybody. Um, I wouldn't know what was going on in the world unless I talked to people. I go to bed like before nine o'clock <laughs> in Los Angeles because I'm old. But, um, you know, I've had like, I thought about this today. I've had like a 30 year solid career doing animation and voices and stuff and um, I consider myself extremely fortunate um, for the chance to be able to do these things and, and just to have so many things that were considered cult shows you know the odds of that are very very uh, you know high against you uh, to be able to you know shows that, that you have no idea that they're, people are going insane over it until you just run into it one day. Subcultures build up around these things. Well that's happened with Ren and Stimpy back in the 90s. Um, you know I had done a few episodes and me and my wife used to go uptown, it was, it was lower the Lower East Side of New York and there was a restaurant called Telephone and it was like brunch it was like it had the Doctor Who phone booth except it was based on a British you know, scenario, and the line was coming out the door at 11.30 of just massive amounts of people, and they were having a Bloody Mary party, and I'm going, what the hell's going on in there, I wonder? And I just can barely get a look in, and they were all watching TV, and uh, I asked this guy, hey, what's going on in there? And he says, this is a Mernon um, Stimpy viewing party. You know, I went, what? You know, I, I, <laughs> at first, I didn't get it. And then that's how I, you know, found out about a lot of things. It's just like, you're kidding me. Because you don't know what you're doing when you're in the middle of something like that, that it's going to become a cultural phenomenon. So, um, you know, and then there was Doug, which people sort of got crazy over um, as years went by. It had like this, you know, uprising of people that wanted pictures of Doug autographed and everything. I did the... Uh, well, let's see, Ren and Stimpy, that was part of the three cartoon animation block on Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. Jerry Laybourne, um, very wise woman, said, we want to do what the networks are not doing. Everything was on Saturday morning. It's like, you know, <laughs> doesn't anybody do anything? And that's the, the day when kids want to run out the door and play, you know? So while the networks have them in, we're going to do it on Sunday so they can be free on Saturday. And it was Rugrats. Ren and Stimpy and Doug. I did uh, Ren and Stimpy. It was a, a big dumb cat and an asthma hound chihuahua. You st well, you started out as the voice of Stimpy and the laughing voice of Ren. Well, at first. At first. You know, uh, while John Kay was still doing Ren before he got fired from the show. Um, but that maniac, la maniac laugh that, uh, that Ren had. John Kay said, here, Billy, do this. Yeah. Well, because he knew I could, I was built for punishment. You know, <laughs> I really was. I mean, I used to, I used to blow my voice out, and I said, I don't care. I just don't care. You know, I was running the risk of losing it forever. But um, I called my wife after one of the first sessions of screaming and yelling, and I sounded like Alec Baldwin. You know, honey, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. Honestly, I just don't think I'm going to be able to do this. You know, and I had no voice. <laughs> And she said, well, you'll figure it out. And I kind of did. I figured out how to scream without, like, ripping your throat to shreds. I had to or I would have been finished. Um, you know, and it really was, like, real screaming. Um, he was like, hey, Ren, will you button me? You shut up, you fool! Yes, I shall kill you! 
And um, it was enough to curl your hair. And I said, that's the level, huh, that we're going to be at? And yep. <clears throat> I used to feel like I was going to pass out. And I'd hear in the booth, the, the little booth mo monitor box, it would say, um, you're 95% there. You know, and I'd be like on the floor having an aneurysm. <laughs> and uh, I just had so much fun doing that cartoon. I did the uh, announcer. Voices like that, peripheral voices like the dad, you know, who had the pipe. And yeah, I just, I loved having these voices. There was a ghost voice uh, in a show called Haunted House. And there was a congressman named Paul Songus, and he had this wishy-washy little voice. And they, they showed me the picture of the ghost, and I said, I think I, I think I got something for it. And it's like, you know, he's trying to scare the daylights out of him, but he's like a scared little ghost himself. And he goes, watch in horror as I frighten them to death. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it played so perfectly because he was... He had a chainsaw, and he had these African tribal masks, and they're sleeping, and they won't wake up. And, and only one time does he break character from this little, you know, there they are, sleeping in bed. And he's got the chainsaw. And then he's trying everything he can to wake them up, and then he finally goes, wake up, you pigs! <laughs> you know, and, and like... That became what I was known for is this, get that guy that can scream his balls off, you know? <laughs> and so it was like I asked for it, really, by, by just being able to maintain it. Um, well, one of the things that, that you in particular brought to so many of these cartoons that so many of us here are huge fans of is this kind of energy, this kind of unique thing that, that they weren't doing on the Saturday morning cartoons. Oh, you know, no. You, you, you would hear, uh, you know, you would hear kind of just more natural speaking voices. You didn't have that kind of heightened character to things. What what was it as as a kid for you that grabbed you? What, what were you a fan of? Oh, whether all, it was cartoons or TV or movies it, or whatever. All of it. It was my my influences were varied. Um, as far as cartoons go, I mean, I would see, I'd hear fifteen voices and I'd see three names in the credits, and I would go, "What the hell?" You know, I said, "Who are these?" these whacked out people. I know there's adults behind it. I wasn't stupid. But I said, what kind of adults are, are doing this stuff? And I never forgot it. And I could, I could actually mimic voices from TV. And it was something I always felt like I needed to do, you know. It's like, why do you do these things? I don't know. It's called being a kid, I guess. And, um, you know, I'd run around turretting out noises and doing voices, and everybody was like, can you not do that? Will you shut up? You know, i go to play piano. We can't, will you stop? And I couldn't express myself. I was dying to express myself. And, uh, you know, they inf those cartoons influenced my need to want to perform or be like those people. And, um, and then every morning before I went to school back in the old days, they showed the Three Stooges every morning before I went to school. So I had a head full of that stuff. I should have introduced him as Larry Fine Jr. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, Mo, there's too much tinsel in the tree. <laughs> Shut up, you, you know. Hey, Mo, you took my money, didn't you? I just don't know why I loved him so much because it was such a non-voice. But once I got it, it was like nobody in the world could pin it. Nobody yeah. could place it. And I said, it's like Larry from the Three Stooges. But for Stimpy, he had to be... Uh, more animated and higher pitched. He couldn't sound like a depressed old Jewish guy. <laughs> you know, so he was like, happy, happy, joy, joy. That's that voice sped up. Um, yeah, so I had a head full of that, and, and people said, Jesus, you're wasting so much of your life, and I had just started. <clears throat> and I couldn't make sense of that because, and I was right, because here I was learning comedic timing. I learned how to act from watching this stuff. And it survived for long after it was gone, to this very day it survived. Everybody has seen it and know it. And, and I knew that that was like something that I wanted to be part of. Um, let's see. You started out radio acting in Boston. Oh, yeah. At what point were you able to, to really effectively, you know, be on the stage that you wanted to be on as a kid once you were doing that stuff in Boston, or was it after that when you started doing it was, It was just a taste of it, because I started out, when I got out of high school, I was a musician, and... Uh, Rock and roll Billy West? Yes. You know, and I, I played guitar and sang, and I was... What was your was, band's name? 
um, one of them was called Big Bucks, and one was called The Shutdowns, n named after a Beach Boys song. You know, and I idolized Brian Wilson. He was one of my big heroes. And I have a story that I, I got to play with Brian Wilson, my absolute musical Well, we have hero. to hear this story. Okay. Well, you got to see, I'm all over the map here. Um, I think so everybody came prepared for that, right? Okay. Show of hands. Yeah. All right, good. Yeah, because there's so much to say. I can't talk for an hour. Somebody said, you've got to go talk for an hour, and most people are like, what? You know, and I said, I can talk for three hours, but I can't talk for an hour. <laughs> One hour, well, that's a challenge. Yes. So, jeez, um, uh, what did I, I wound up, uh, oh, a friend of mine from Boston wound up producing Brian Wilson's solo album, first solo album. And he was making a comeback. From, he had battled back from, you, you saw the movie Love and Mercy, what that guy went through as a child and everything else. And uh, he, uh, he came by the radio station I worked at, which was WBCN in Boston. I was doing voices, and I was actually splicing tape when they had it, you know, with the white grease pencil. And you had to mark where you needed to edit, and you took a single-edge razor blade and spliced it. You know, they don't do that anymore. That was like the Stone Age, but... Um, here he comes, this is my hero, Brian Wilson, shows up at the station and I got to ask him questions and everything. And I just couldn't believe it was going on, that I was in the same space as this guy. And then he left and um, my friend calls me up like months later and says, hey, hey Billy, so somebody here wants to say hi to you. And he puts me on the phone with Brian. And he goes, hello, who's this? He's like a little kid. He is because he destroyed so much brain cells that while he was, he was experimented himself right out of the game with acid when he was like 23. So he was at the height of his powers at 23 years old. And, um, so he's battling back and he um, said to me, we have the same initials. And I said, Jesus, is this Brian Wilson? He goes, yeah, hi. I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> You know, it's like a character out of a Christopher Guest movie. I know, but this is this is the guy that wrote Good Vibrations yeah. and, and God Only Knows and Surf City and all this shit. And and it was the soundtrack to my, my teens, really. <clears throat> and so I get to talk to him, and then who grabs the phone? Dr. Eugene Landy, who was like, like a, oh, he took over Brian's life. He was a shrink that was working with Brian on straightening out and everything, and he essentially brainwashed the guy and took over his life. So he grabs and he goes, hello, who's this? And I said, well, uh, my name is Billy West, and um, you know, Andy just put me on the phone, and I just was saying hi to Brian. That's, that's very good, that's nice. You know, and then he, he hung up on me. So, but my friend called me and said, um, Brian's playing. He's, he, there's this new movie Don Was put out called I Wasn't Made for These Times. And that happened to be the saddest song I ever heard in my life. I used to cry listening to it because he, was, he wanted to be so forward. He was 47 years ahead of his time when you think about it. You know, he didn't, Smile didn't win like tons of Grammys. It, it wasn't even released back in his day. There was a permutation of it. Yeah. But Smile was re-released, he redid the whole thing and it won all these Grammys. So he was 47 years ahead of his time. And uh, you know, and next thing you know, he says, Brian's playing down in Santa Monica and I'm trying to throw some musicians together. You know all his stuff. I said, you're damn right I do. And so it was me and Elliot Easton from the Cars, who was a buddy of mine from Boston. And here we are playing with Brian Wilson, and it was like, whose dream is this? You know, do I pinch you, or are you going to pinch me, or do I pinch myself? And uh, this is the the um, the worship and adoration we had for this guy. And so after the show, oh, I remember he was doing 409, the old Hot Rod song, and he's coming around the the chorus, and he's like, nothing can touch her, nothing can touch my 409, 409, and I'm making like four-speed, five-speed hot rod noises while he's singing, and I'm going... <laughs> and he looked up like, like a little kid, and he was like, like, what, what happened? <laughs> but he loved it. And so um, he's very hard to get to know, but he knew me because uh, one night there was a writer, David Leaf, 
who wrote books on the Beach Boys, and he, my friend called me up and said, Billy, Brian's over David's house. We're having dinner, and um, they want you to come over. So I came over, and they had, Brian and his wife had just been to the hospital. Hey, come on in. <laughs> I'm just here to take your picture. Oh, really? Not, not to interrupt you too much. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't point at, steal your soul. Don't point at me, you'll steal my soul. Um, is it a good camera at least? It is, I promise. Okay, <laughs> worth the interruption. There's lots of money, the lenses, all of it. Lots of money? <laughs> it's very far from garbage. Then it must be good. <laughs> you should steal it. Huh? Sell it. Steal it and sell it, you know. From you? Yeah, sure. No. <laughs> I don't even know where you live. How's the crack in that neighborhood, by the way? Is it any good? I like high crime areas. Yeah, I'm waiting for Uber to put out an armored car so I can go anywhere I want. You would not like my neighborhood. It's too nice for you, then. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Oh. Sorry. Well, I don't my slum it, but I... The old neighborhood, you would have loved it. I couldn't go to my old neighborhood. I was in Detroit last week at a show, and they said, you're going to go visit your house? I said, um, no. I don't know that the house is still there. No, it is still there. It's just like the police won't even go in that neighborhood at night. They won't go. They said, if you've got any dead bodies, just leave them on the corner, and we'll just whiz by and pick them up. <laughs> Honestly, and I was like, oh, boy. We got out a long millions of years ago, time ago. And um, But I was talking about... Um, you know, Brian and his wife had just come from the hospital visiting her sister who was dying of some weird form of cancer, and they were both depressed. And I came over, and I, I keep running into Brian Wilson. It was like a foreshadowing of something that was going to happen. And uh, we're sitting at the table, and Brian was like, uh, you know, if he saw a glass of wine sitting over there like that somebody else was drinking, he would just get up and kind of walk over and go, like that, like a child. And, and the guy's wife said, Brian, no. You know, like he was three. Yet he's still there musically. Totally still there. And we're sitting at the table and I said, Brian, did you ever meet Frank Sinatra? And he goes, oh yeah, over at Capitol. You know, I wrote a song for him. And I said, hey, Mr. Sinatra, I wrote you a song. Keep it. You know, he, he, was, <laughs> he was mimicking Sinatra. And I started, I started thinking, and I know me, it's like I, I will just like throw stuff out there from another world and I started singing High Hopes by Frank Sinatra which was just look at that silly old ant thinks he can move that rubber tree plant everyone knows an ant can't move a rubber tree plant and Brian's sitting there and he comes in with the harmony right where it's supposed to come in cause he's got high hopes he's singing high hopes you know right at right at the table and and they got so happy they were so like lifted out of this depression so here's this guy that gave me so much that i that i helped him you know laugh and and feel okay you know it's just like stuff like that it it kind of only happens in your fantasies but it can happen and the message there is basically that the future is so unwritten i don't care who you are you know I don't care who you are. You could be an old geezer like me in the back, sitting there going, eh, I've never heard of this asshole. <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, even his future is unwritten. He has no idea what will happen. That's the beauty of life. You know, it's like my life was a David Byrne song. I, I came from misery as a child. My dad was a psycho and a drunk and abusive, and I was the whipping boy. I was the oldest. And so I never was a kid. I was like a worried little old man because the, the adults were irresponsible. They were drinkers. And so I had to stay up and make sure everything was okay before it was time to go to bed. So I never really had a childhood, but I isolated myself in this, this other world, you know, just because I needed protection against the, the uh, brutality and all these unexpected things. And... Um, it served me well, actually, because I formulated all this junk by the time I was 10 years old. And I wound up doing it many, many decades later. But that was like after I had gone through a world of all kinds of things. Uh, but it was like, you know, David Byrne, you know, and you may find yourself, you know, sitting next to Brian Wilson, playing guitar and singing. How do I work this? You know, he's like talking about fate. Um, 
and I felt like that. And I've met most of my idols. Um, you know, before I get into that stuff, though, I want to tell you, the other Nicktoon that I did was Doug. Not the Disney Doug, I did the Nickelodeon one. Uh, I, I don't know what this Disney Doug you're talking about is. Yes. I only know of a show called Doug. Yeah. yeah. Well, Disney, I don't know. Doesn't, no, they doesn't did exist it. to me. I wouldn't do it. I turned it down because they wanted too much and they wanted me. I just moved to California and they want me to come to New York at least two times a week. And, and it was just like for no money, you know, typical. And I said, no, I wish you nothing but luck. And they kept shoving deal memos through the fax machine at me. And I said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I, I'm not interested. But I wish you nothing but luck. I was a gentleman about it. I didn't go pissy and say, yeah, you think you can replace me? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> um, but the thing that I did was he was just, you know, um, Doug was painfully average 11 and a half year old and really shy. And uh, this is my dog, Porkchop. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got a couple of friends. I love Patty Mayonnaise. I fantasize her about her all the time. Yeah, sure you do, loser, until I showed up, and now you've got egg all over your face. <laughs> hey, funny, I'm running for office. Vote for this. You know, and he was based on a real kid that I knew, a bully, <laughs> whose hair came to a point. His nose was pointed. His fingers were... And uh, his shoes were pointy. I mean, he was just... a. Unnatural human being, you know. You wonder, you wonder what happens to guys like that. I think they become cops. No, I knew a lot of tough guys that were always in trouble. That one day they got out and they decided to be a cop. So better than death or jail or hospitals, you know. Um, but that guy used to bug the hell out of me, and so I, you know, formulated him as as like a, a real character. People. People say to me a lot that when I do these characters, they say they know somebody just like that. Like, so it's almost like you can relate it to real life. It's not some, you know, disembodied, high-pitched, genderless voice that, you know, came out of my cleverness bag, you know, and I'll make it really cartoony. But that's not my objective, whatever you hear at the end, because um, I wanted it to seem like they were real people. Matt Groening said to me um, one time, he says, to all of us, he said, you know, uh, Futurama is real to him. He said, The Simpsons is a cartoon. But to him, Futurama was real, that these people actually existed. And uh, I thought that was really fascinating because it meant that everybody was trying to do their best to be honest and not sound contrived. You know, and, and they, you know, like the professor was based on all those dithering absent-minded wizards and professors and mad scientists, you know, and like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And, and I just took everything I remember about all those old guys, you know, and uh, he was like, um, the 147-year-old great, 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 great grandnephew of that young idiot Fry, you know, and... Uh, and they said, you can just like do that? I said, of course, because look at him. When I first saw that drawing, I said, he looks like airplane food. <laughs> you know, he looked like a, a diseased piece of chicken with skin wrapped around it. And with like age spots or algae or something. And I just thought, he, he, what could else could he do besides be rickety? And I just, that's the first time I ever physically... Well, not the first time, because I used to do this all the time with certain voices, like uh, Honey at Cheerios B. Honey at Cheerios, it's irresistible. <laughs> Many years ago. Um, but the professor was that. I wanted, I wanted the feel of what it would be like to sit there and talk or shake hands with a 147-year-old. Um, Zoidberg was a combination of different voices. Um, I picked... I usually go for like showbiz periphery. People who weren't big stars, but they were like essential to a lot of old movies. So you always had these types. You had these lovable stupids, you know, and they were known for, because they looked, central casting picked them because they looked like they didn't know what was going on. Like, ah, yeah, okay. You know, but there were actors that embodied that. They looked stupid and they knew how to get a job and play that part. And there were, you know, evil women actress types that would get cast for certain roles. You were typecast.
but they made money. They worked. Um, two guys, one was in vaudeville. Vaudeville was something that existed before there was television. You know, there's the movies, and then actually even before the movies, they were doing stage shows for people, like 12 acts, 15 acts in a row, all day and into the night, two matinees. And that was hard, hard work for these people, but there was comedians, there were dancers, you know, variety. And uh, one guy in the 30s, his name was George Jessel, and he was the Toastmaster General of the United States. He always had some uh, witty little toast, you know. Ladies and germs, you know, good evening, ladies and germs. And, and he would say, you know the definition of a smart ass? A fellow that can sit in an ice cream cone and tell you what flavor it is. <laughs> you know, and I just remember him. And I said, that is just so priceless and weird. And then there was another marble mouth guy from um, Yiddish theater, and he was in tons of movies. You, you know who he is, even if you think you don't. Uh, Lou Jacoby. He was in the first Arthur movie. And he leans into Dudley Moore and goes, what's it like to have all that money? You know, and it doesn't suck. And so I put those two guys together, and it came up with Zoidberg, you know. You need an autograph? Why not Zoidberg? Line up. You know, Zoidberg could leave. You know, insinuating himself into everything. And I love the funniest part of that, that character I said to Matt, I said, I love that he's a doctor and he's poor. <laughs> I never saw that ever in my life. You know, it's so great. He's always trying to, like, insinuate himself into situations. Now Zoidberg is the popular one. You know, the guy who brings nothing to the party. <laughs> and a mooch. And just, they're endearing, roguish uh, charms that, that a character can have. And I played it you know, like that could exist in real life. And um, Fry was my own voice from when I was 25. I remember what I sounded like. I was in bands, you know. Ah, shit, we broke a, I broke a string. Now what are we going to do? We don't even have roadies. You know, I was whiny and complaining and nasally. And I just remember it so well. <laughs> and then it became Fry. Um, let's see who else. Oh. Zap Brannigan, originally Phil Hartman, was slated to do that role. Um, he called me up when I still lived in New York before I moved to California. And my wife took the call, and I was on my way home. I was working on the Stern show back then, Howard Stern radio show. And I'm driving home, and I hear the gates of hell clang shut behind me, you know, Manhattan, the belly of the beast. And I'm heading for the suburbs. My wife called and said, guess who called here looking for you? I said, who? And she said, Phil Hartman. He just, he wanted to say he was a big fan. And the first thing I, uh, V, you know how many guys I know that could pull off a prank like that? There's Maurice LaMarche, there's this one, there's that one. Um, and you can just see Maurice, you know, sitting there chomping on a cigar. Really? To himself. Yeah. So um, <laughs> she said, no, it was him. And he, and he left his number. He, he'd love you to call him. I was like flipped out. I said, how does this guy know me? I hadn't really done anything yet, except for, uh, you know, the Nicktoons, but I really hadn't done anything after that. And he said, uh, I called him up and he said, oh yeah, man, I just wanted to tell you I was a big fan. And I said, well, I kind of know who you are too. <laughs> and he was so generous of spirit, you know. He said, listen, you got to come to California. All the studios are here. All your, your work is going to be here. And if you do come out here, call me, I'll help you get acclimated. It doesn't get any better than that, that an actor of, of stature, of note, and accomplishments would act that way to a newcomer. But it's just because he, he followed what I did. And, um, you know, we got together, hung out a little bit when I first moved, and we actually did a commercial together on the M&M's commercials. He played this strutting you know, uh, egomaniacal candy bar named Chalky Bar. <laughs> and he's at poolside, you know, and he's, he's just, like, doing whatever he feels like, you know. Yeah, I get to stay out of the sun. You know, and it was Phil. And, uh, you know, and after that, I said, geez, you know, he's so great. But then one night, when I was married, my wife was with me out there, and she woke up in the middle of the night, and I was kind of up, too. It was about 3 in the morning. And she said, how can you stand this place? I said, what do you mean? 
She said, this, it's like a snake pit. Everybody that looks at you wants something. And I said, I don't look at it like that. If you're looking for good, you'll find it. Without even thinking, if you don't find out who's who and what's what, you'll get taken advantage of. So you can't, you got to have both eyes and ears open. She said, yeah, but who, who outside your friends are decent people? I said, Phil Hartman is one of the most decent guys I ever met in my life. He was so generous of spirit. He was... Uh, non-competitive, you know, and I said, there is a real good human being, and I swear, as we were saying those things, he was shot to death in his sleep by his wife, and it's just weird that that happened, because the next morning I woke up, and they said he was, like, shot to death, and then the wife shot herself, and their kids came in and saw everything, and I was blown away, and then later they asked me, do you want to try to do, um, Zap Brannigan. I said, yeah, I mean, but they said Phil was going to do it. You know, we loved his delivery and everything. And I said, well, you know what? When we were talking, we shared our, our love of big dumb announcers from the old days, you know, like from radio and TV. Friends, you know what you and I need? Really need? That's a good cup of coffee. You know, those old-time guys that were so pompous and they loved the sound of, uh, you know, they carried their balls in a wheelbarrow and... They, <laughs> Just absolutely loved the sound of their own voice far and away above everything that they would swing with every pitch. Like, if there was nothing to say, they'd find a noise to link it to the next word. Like, hamburger helper. You know, and they would be like, you know, coming to the Worcester Centrum, meh. You know, they would just like lean in and act like, you know, aren't I something? You know, I'm the cock of the walk. Yeah. Making art out of filling space. Yes. I know, and it was so laughable to somebody like me because I always I could do those guys too. I really could do them better than anybody. But I thought, who talks like this? You know, people just got used to some big dumb announcer yelling at them on the radio and TV, and you, and you had to assume that he was telling you the truth because he was. It was more authoritarian, and I didn't like that stuff. But I was I was laughed my ass off at it. So I found it charming in a way, and I and I. <clears throat> From what we were saying, me and Phil talking about those guys, um, I had formulated a voice that would be like sort of a tribute to Phil, but only a little different, a little more, a uh, little more uh, put on, like really leaning into those pauses where he had nothing to say, you know, and he'd be like, uh, you know, why don't you and I knock some sensuous boots in the lovenasium? <laughs> you know, and it was so ingratiating, and it was so get under your skin. And someone says, I hate that guy. I said, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> Careful, let the men. I've made it with a woman. Nah. You know, and he had these Shakespearean pauses because the, the original description I got about him was, uh, think uh, if William Shatner was in charge of the Enterprise and not James T. Kirk. <laughs> Give, pick up my underwear. You know. It was just, it was the right thing for him, and it resonated. But that's, that was my objective always, was to make something that would resonate with just about everybody. And um, so far, I did pretty good thinking that, thinking that way about things. And um, With your, your versatility, you've ended up playing a lot of scenes with yourself. Yes. But, you know, the... Well, you meet a better class of people that way. <laughs> Yes, and what do you have to say? None of your business. Oh, yeah. No, it's, um, it's fun. And I was a freak since I was a kid, so I was, like, used to that stuff. Um, but I would do six pages, and it would all be characters that I happen to be doing, so I'd act against myself, which is hard because uh, on Ren and Stimpy, they'd record one part all the way through, and then they would record another character all the way through, and they would mi mix and match. Uh, but boy, I mean, it really kept you on your toes to, to act in real time in sequence, one after the other. And uh, as long as David Cohen, the director, was happy, I was happy. I trusted those guys. They were so brilliantly funny, and they created their own comedic language, actually. Like, somebody says, you know, hey, Fry, I heard beer makes you stupid. And he goes, no, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, and I read it at the record, and I said, David, no, I'm doesn't? He goes, please read it as written. I said, isn't that a typo? Isn't that a typo or something? And he goes, no, please read it as written. So, okay, but I'll be back for the $825 session fee to fix it. 
Um, but boy, when I saw it on TV, it was the best acting I'd ever done in my life. Because I, I was playing a character and I truly didn't know what I was saying. So it sounded so authentic. You know, the best acting job I ever did because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, Something I, I, I mentioned to you yesterday is, is that we, we have a friend in common named Andrea Romano. Yes. And uh, I'd love to, to hear you re regale us a little bit with, uh, with, in particular, things that you learned from a great voice director like Andrea, who, for those unfamiliar with the name, voice directed Animaniacs, Batman the Animated Series, SpongeBob SquarePants. I mean, the list Tiny goes tunes. Tiny Toons on and on and on. Um, yeah. Yeah. She was this woman. Um, I hadn't met her, I was in Boston, but I would read about what was going on at Hanna-Barbera and she was put in charge of casting. Uh, I, I was like reckless and I had no respect for a lot of things still because um, I think, no, I had stopped drinking so I was like getting on the good foot. Um, but I called her up and I said, um, I wanna send you demo tape. This is Andrea Romano who I became such close friends with years and years later after I got over my trip. But I was like, you know, where do I send it? And she was like, well, she gave me the dress and she was very polite and I go, okay. Then I didn't hear from her and I was getting like, what the fuck? You know, and so I call her up again. Hey lady. Like, yeah, yeah, so? <laughs> Out of hundreds of people she deals with a day, I'm like bugging her. And um, I said, did you get my tape? And she goes, oh yes. And I said, well, you know, and uh, I can't even imagine me acting like that because that's not really me. Um, I just thought, okay, it's me versus Hollywood, so I better lay down the law right off the bat. You know? Here I go. Yeah, here I go. All million of you <laughs> versus me. Uh, and she said, I got it. And I said, well, and she said, it, it was too long like that in a very patient tone with me. And I said, oh. Okay, you know, and so I did an addendum and I sent it, but this time I wasn't gonna bug her. I just thought, Jesus, I was acting like a total a-hole. You know, everybody's gotta make their mistakes. You live and you learn, you know, like what's appropriate and what's not. And I was new, I was newly sober, so I was like, I didn't know what end was up. You know, I didn't know what it was like to be outside, you know, after 7.30 at night without being smashed for years, decades. Um, <clears throat> so, I finally got to audition for her, and I didn't make the audition, but we uh, had another session where it was a casting call, and I really met her and got to talk to her, and I apologized for my rudeness. Um, and she said, oh, that's fine, you know. But then she started casting me because she heard something, you know, underneath all this bluster, which was totally put on. I have to keep saying that. I was role-playing. It was armor. You were, you were it was strapping armor. it on. Yeah, I didn't know her. I didn't know what a, an amazing person she was. So she started to hire me, and I got to work with her on so many things. Like I had done, uh, oh, God, I was doing Bugs Bunny for a, a web cartoon, and she hired me as Bugs. And then later I got the job as Bugs in Space Jam. You know, and I was, like, thrilled to death. And I got to work with Michael Jordan, too, Doc. The closest thing to a religious figure that we have. <laughs> <laughs> and I met him at the rap party. I'd never met him. I wasn't in the same place as he was. You know, that's how they do it. It's like they film the live action and they superimpose. So, um, you know, his agent, Ken Ross, big sports agent. Michael Jordan is standing there, and this guy, his whole life is people saying his name every split second. You know, Michael, 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 Michael. And his agent goes, Michael, and he knows that voice. So he turns around and he goes, Ken. And he goes, this is Billy West. And he reaches over like six people. <laughs> and his hand was like this. And I was like going, holy crap. And, and he said, Billy, you know, like that endearingly. And I was thrilled. And I was absolutely thrilled to do it. I did Elmer Fudd in that movie, too. That, he was one of my favorite characters, if you're talking about mimicking a character, yeah. because he was a brain-dead hunter. And I thought that was hellaciously funny in itself, you know, with the flap ears and the... But he's got weaponry, man. He's dangerous. <laughs> but he's like a little boy coming out in the woods, you know. Shh. Be very, very quiet. 
I'm hunting wabbits. <laughs> you know, and it was like, and then he'd go from zero to 60 if he was mad. There was no in between. Oh, wait, wabbit, come out of there with your hands up. You know, I'll blast you. And I loved the shift in gears, and so um, I loved doing it in the movie. And I had done it for other things, like some of the uh, Warner Brothers after-school cartoons that are of, of late, you know, maybe 2007 or nine, maybe. Um, As a kid, you, you had a great deal of affection for Mel Blanc's voices? Absolutely. And, again, I've met most of my heroes, and I got to meet Mel Blanc. Um, he was playing in Boston, just giving a slideshow and a... And a uh, you know, an appearance at this old college auditorium, Wooden Hall, Clark University in Worcester. It was ancient. And I happened to see in the paper, I'm in Boston, and I happened to see in the paper that Mel Blanc is going to be in Worcester, Massachusetts. So I bum rides and everything, and I go out there. And I'm sitting there, and he comes out, and I'm like going, this is the guy. Oh, my God, you know. And we always wondered, me and a close friend of mine, when we worked in radio, we'd be high as rats and we'd be laying out the back on our lunch break. And we'd go, what must it be like, looking up at the sky, what must it be like to be the guy? You know, the guy. And he said, we'll never know. <laughs> so, cut to the future, that guy, Eddie Gordetsky, who was my, my uh, partner in radio, really, we worked together on a lot of stuff there. Um, he became one of, the, one of the biggest names in television comedy as a producer. Uh, you see his name on every show, Eddie Gordetsky. It's like he created Mom. He works with Chuck Lorre. I mean, that's big, big time. And here we were, two urchins, you know. And I said, I called him up, I guess. I guess one of us found out. <laughs> but he said people come up to him that don't even know that he knows me and talk about me to him. So he says, I, I get an earful every day of you. <laughs> so, you know. It's kind of funny how that worked out. We were voted least likely, you know, when you think about it. Two losers. But that's what I meant about the future being unwritten. Nobody owns tomorrow. I met Donald Trump once. And you lived to tell the tale. No, you know, he was on the Stern Show as a guest, and I couldn't contain myself. I had to say something to him. So I go, you know, I catch him in the hall, and I go, Donald, man. What's it like, you know, alluding to his vast empire and money and all that? And he goes, friend, I would rather be you right now. And I was like, why? And he said, do you owe $900 million? And he had just lost all his right-hand people that he trusted and depended in a helicopter, helicopter crash over Connecticut. In other words, they were coming to New York, and he just lost them all. He was in limbo. He, he had no idea. He was in 900 in debt, like, hours after, 900 million in debt, hours after that crash. You know, he was like, but his future was unwritten. For a day, he wished he was me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then if he, Trump had been Stimpy. <laughs> <laughs> you fired. <laughs> yeah. And now he's running for president. Talk about the future being unwritten. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, that's worse than Reagan. People thought that he was a buffoon, you know? Wait a minute, he was in movies with a monkey. And now he's president of the United States. Let me put you in bed. Yep, Here Bonzo. Bonzo the monkey. Where, where's Bonzo? You know, if he snuck out of the house or something. This is way back a million years ago in the 30s. Brass Bancroft. Yes, yes. So how do you know all this shit? I... Look... You, 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 have a, you have a great, 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 great grandnephew. Oh, wow. Here. Wow. <laughs> After traveling through time. Well, do I look that old? I mean, no, no, no. Do I, do no. I fart dust? You no. haven't seen it once yet. No, I travel. There is no evidence of me farting dust like a mummy. I travel back through time. You're not going to believe what you do in the year 2021. That's the kind of thinking I but love. But it's unwritten. That's Stephen Hawking thinking. <laughs> you know, and, uh, oh, we met him on Futurama. Well, the writers did. And they told me a story about how they were out with him and they wanted to bring him to lunch. They said, can we, can we, you know, get you lunch? He said, I'll go with you. And he's traveling down the sidewalk with his, his thing. Hello. Oh, okay, I'll tell you later. Ooh. Ooh, secrets. No, it's a girl I know who's a disc jockey in L.A. and she just called up to... Uh, she just called to say... 
I love you. <laughs> well, now we know. We love each other like as friends. You know, she's like the sister I never had, uh, Stephanie Miller. Um, but uh, where was I with that before I was chimed? What? Stephen Hawking. Oh, yeah, him. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, him. Yeah, so he's going down the street, and, and he was losing control of the, the cart, and it starts freely and there was two old biddies and they had to jump out of the way. And they caught up to him and they said, Mr. Hawking, are you all right? And he goes, I was just playing chicken. <laughs> you know, and then I, I said, Jesus, imagine if he had a sit-down comedy act or something. You know. I hate you. Fuck you. You suck. You know, oh, I, I, I can't do it because it takes too long, but it's a science, science joke. You know the difference between a comedian and a cotangent? The comedian tells jokes. <laughs> it's a dumb science joke, and it wasn't worth, <laughs> wasn't worth stealing in the first place. <laughs> Observational comedy at the end of the universe. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, you know, it, uh, you try to tell Stephen Hawking about the Stooges. See, their biggest prop in those comedies and what made it funnier than anything was, was Mo hitting Curly in the face with a pie. And he would go, why would I want to put 3.1754, whatever, the, on my face to get laughs? <laughs> We've yeah, only, I just think I've always been abstract. We've only got a few minutes left. If you guys have questions, I've got one more for him, and then I'll turn it over to you guys. I'm going to go to you first. So yes. You better, oh, well, let's go to you right now. Yeah, you made it. Do it. Stand up so everybody can get a good look at you. So, um, look at that. Who was your favorite character to be, and who was the hardest to say goodbye to? Mm. Mm. Favorite character? I, can, I, can, I, can I split that to favorite character that you originated and favorite character that you took over? Uh, that I originated, yeah, I'll tell you. Um, all of them. I, and I, I know it sounds like a cop-out, like, well, you know, I loved them all, but I truly did, and I put a thousand percent into anything. Because you, uh, think of the, I don't know, the responsibility that you have. All these other people did everything, wrote it, and they're animating it, and they produced it, and they made it look the way it did, and they, and they wrote the funniest stuff in the world, and they're entrusting me to interpret those characters for their show. It's quite an honor. So I took it super seriously. I never threw away any voice or a line, you know. I always took it real serious, and it's like you do a little bit of deliberation before you open your mouth. Um, whether luckily, it's, Whether it's Fry and Doug or, you know, the little parts you've done on Adventure Time for Penn Ward. Yeah, or being asked by Bruce Tim to just come in and be Billy to do Booster Gold uh, oh, yeah. skeets. I mean, I said, what do you want, uh, Bruce? And he goes, just be Billy. <laughs> okay. I was like, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Skeets. It's <laughs> just this plain nothing <laughs> vanilla voice. Um, yeah, I can't tell you a favorite. It's like asking a, a dad or a mom who their favorite kid is. You know, it's just really hard because I, I had such a love of all of them. Um, is, there, is there one of Mel's voices that you took over that, that, was, that, was, that was an emotional experience you know, stepping into the booth the first time. Yeah, uh, Bugs was, because that was a lot of pressure. But while I was doing that movie, everybody who came in the damn door, you know, like whoever the, was the network nosy face in the window, you know. We have a clipboard, we have beans. Would come in and go, he sounds too Jewish. Okay, okay, duly noted. I wasn't aware Bugs Bunny was not Jewish. Well, I mean, but he, he's like... You're playing him too cute. You know, he's from Brooklyn. He's got to be more Bronx. And, and every asshole who came in had some little thing to say. And I'm thinking to myself, eh, shut up. <laughs> and I just did my version of what they wanted, you know. Because he had millions of directors. Not millions, but I mean a lot of directors that played him a certain way and told Mel to play it like this or this. Um, the one to say goodbye to her is pretty much like, Sad to see Futurama end because that was my favorite show of anything I ever did. That was like, oh God, I could, I really got heavily emotionally involved in it. And I still have separation anxiety, but I have you to thank because you guys brought the show back yeah. more than once. And Fox, and Fox couldn't, uh, you know, Fox couldn't ignore 
this this wave of fandom, and so they brought it back. But it, it was it like had, you had to have a gun to their head. It had more unretirements than Barbara Streisand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in in keeping with that, is I mean, is there interest from you if you know if Matt and those guys want to want to bring it back in some form or another? I haven't heard anything, but occasionally we would be. Uh, at these Fox things, or maybe it was another wrap-up party for Futurama or the DVDs or whatever it was, and we keep seeing each other, um, but we weren't working together anymore. And uh, I came over to Matt when it was over, and I said, "Listen, man, uh, I I just hope you know I try to give a thousand percent you know for everything that you put in front of me and." Uh, and I want to thank you for this great, great opportunity. And the whole time he's going, like, shut up. And, and I go, what? And he goes, okay, all I can tell you, we're going to work together again. Okay? You know, and, and then you would think Futurama. But in my mind, I figured out, what if he's got a whole other show developed? Yeah, what if he's been spending 15 years doing the pre-work on some on new big, huge another thing? show. And me and Mo and John DiMaggio ran into him up at um, Universal's uh, City Walk. They were having a party for an episode of the season premiere of another Simpsons uh, premiere, whatever. And, um, and there we were. And I see Matt talking to a bunch of people, and me and John and Mo are standing. We just want to say hi to him, you know. And he's sitting there, and he's like, and he looks up and he goes, I got to talk to you guys. And we're standing there like, whoa, what's up? And so we come in and he goes, I got this thing. And I'm working on doing something with it. And I'm talking, we're talking to people and, you know. And he says, but I want you guys to do voices. <laughs> so I'm waiting for the phone call, you know. <laughs> That'll be a very nice phone call. It will. The unwritten future. Yeah, I know. There should be an app for, like, the most important calls you're ever going to get in your life. <laughs> if Matt Greening is calling, <laughs> also electrocute me. Yes. Shine lights. Yeah. The whole nine. Yeah, use the yep. sound functions and, yeah. So uh, over the last, you know, several uh, decades, you know, from when you started to now, uh, how would you say that uh, technology has impacted how you record your lines and how you interact with other characters and other well, characters. Changes in, you know, group reads versus solo like, reads. Oh, yeah. Kind of thing. And, and, you know, like how they can do it today, they can pretty much just turn out an animatic and almost have like 8% of the yeah. animation done. Yeah, it's my favorite to do an ensemble with other people because you don't know how I feel about all these other people. It's like I hold them in really high esteem. You know, all my voice actor friends, it's like... No one can know the feeling of walking into a room full of genius talent. And, and to be able to say, well, that's what I do, I show up and I, you know. But I hold everybody in super high regard. <clears throat> and I learn from everybody. And it's not like you're jealous or you're covetous of whatever they're doing, whatever role they got. It's just like we're all working to keep the goddamn bar off the ground. You know, because celebrities just come marching in and throw it on the floor and where's my $20 million, you know. I don't have the luxury of going in and doing exactly who I am and what I sound like. I, I can't do that, but these people somehow do. And they draw the character to look like them. You know why? Because CGI movies were making more money than regular movies. And so they weren't going to lose their precious star system, so they had them doing voices in these movies. And, and I never saw any sense to it. It's like that's why they called us, because we were like alchemists. I remember producers basically saying, look, we got this bar of lead on the table, and it would be great if you could change it into gold, you know, like before you left. <laughs> Boom. Done. I mean, you got five minutes. Done. Sir. Alchemy. Something started somewhere and then turned into something really amazing. And then now it's like the celebrities see the bar on the table and fuck that, you know, where's my money? Um, and I've heard celebrities say things like, you know, I did it for my kid. You know, and they, they say... And that's the, some uh, expensive college that kid's going to. That's right. And, I, and I'm like, I'm sure that the kid didn't corner, you know, dopey daddy who's just like a nitwit at home, but meanwhile he's a major star worldwide. It's like, oh, him. You know, uh, that when they, daddy can come home and go, guess what, kids? I'm the voice of a cartoon. You know, and now he's cool to his kids. 
They say that's the reason they do it, but that's not the reason because, oh, some writer wrote, well, they make scale, you know. Meanwhile, there's what scale? 20 million for, for coming down from Mount Olympus and gracing us with their presence and then Let's disappear. see your Thunderbolt, Zeus. Here's my Thunderbolt. Where's my 20 million? Yeah, dollars? really. Oh, and Prometheus, a word with you, please. You know. Um, it was like that. And, you know, and I said, this is all hogwash, you know. And so I was very vocal about it. And people were like going, aren't you scared? You know, aren't you scared you're going to get, like, blacklisted or something? I said, fuck no. You know what's the beauty of being old is you don't give a shit about what people think about you or what anybody says. It means nothing. So it wasn't like, you know, the king of show business was going to be beating my door down. Where is he? Bring me the one they call Billy West. You know, and then, yes, sir. And it's like the Rockford Files. Do you ever see the Rockford Files? Where whenever he answered the door, they get, you name Rockford? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought it was, you know, it's not like that. It's not like that. We're going to teach you a few lessons here. Um, you know, and so one of the greatest voice actors, Tony Jay, he was in the oh. Disney features, mm. and he had this sonorous, you know, British centurion voice. Um, he said, I wanted to thank you. This is before he died. He said, for, for doing that article and talking about how, what the hell is going on? You know, you're putting out a work. You know, actors are union people just like us. They're in the same damn union. And they're putting people that spent, devoted their lives to this out of work. And I said, this is, this is totally messed up, and I wouldn't stop talking about it. And it's like, well, why is he bitching? This guy does everything, and it's not like that. It's like I feel for the 19-year-old girl who just got out of high school and is, has a bent for the arts, and it just so happens she could do all these voices, and she's a spark plug, or a guy, young guy, and they will never, ever have a chance to be doing animation in features and because they didn't have a sitcom and became famous and then they didn't do movies. And now you can do a cartoon, that's the rules now. You know, I skipped over that. And I maintain to this day that I know voice actors that can piss circles around any damn actor that you could name uh, because they're actors too. We just not thought of like that. But we have this much to work with and com convey and get attention. Um, they don't know what that's like. They're knocking over, you know, music stands with, with like sheets of dialogue, you know, like, like this. And it's like, no, what, what is that all about? They don't, they don't even know how to act. Um, you know, and people accept it, you know, but I, it was my opinion that just because a celebrity was in the movie wasn't a guarantee that you were gonna put asses in the seats. That's what they try to co-opt. Um, but their abysmal amount of failures tell the whole tale. You know, for every winner that they have, there's like a million CGI with celebrity voices in it that didn't make the cut. Um, so my, my thinking is like been validated. You know, the failure after failure. We um, have another Q&A coming up. <clears throat> you uh, do? But, Wait a minute. But I've got to wrap up. Wait a minute, who's more important? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've got to wrap up on, on that note. Okay, and, sure. You know, empowered with this. I hope that somebody learned something. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think we all learned a couple uh, hundred dozen things. Oh, good, good. good. Um, in 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 keeping with you know the notion of, of being empowered by not not giving a shit what people think and doing things for the right reasons and doing work that is nourishing and good and you know nutritious for the, the you know the soul. You and these these voice actors who are like the new Mercury Theater, the Royal Shakespeare Company of old. You, how I do mean, you know all this stuff? <laughs> I spent a lot of time indoors and not hanging around as many girls as I would have liked. Jesus, and you're back to listening to Orson Welles and the Mercury Players? Holy Welcome shit. Welcome back, everyone. Yes. Yes. It was um, a night like no other night in October. You know, it's a war of the worlds. Yeah. Um, but you know what? There's one thing I want to say before I bust out of here. Is if you're in college, anybody in college or anything? Get out. <laughs> like, like yesterday. Live life. No, there's nothing out there for you. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's like, it's not like you don't know it. You're sweating bullets. Like, I'm going to be in debt the rest of my life, and I'm going to have a job where I have to wear a paper hat with my big college education. Yes. So, my advice is get into the entertainment business. If you could do almost... <laughs> your odds, your odds of actually making big money uh, are there. 
You know what I mean? Rather than the work-a-day world. It's designed to keep you under the spit for the rest of your life, which would be a drone. You, would you say that you would fairly endorse, you know, people getting together, putting together their, their team of people like, you know, the, the Cambridge Footlights or something, their own troop of people to go out and just do stuff? Yes, but even better, you don't have to have the spotlight. You don't need to be a star or an actor. If you can design dresses, you can get a job in show business. If you're a carpenter, you know, you can't find any work anywhere because all the factories were shipped out and there's 55 year old white guys in New Hampshire like driving their trucks drunk into the front of houses because they got the George Bailey thing. You know, it's like they can't support their kids and their family. They have no pension, no savings, and the house is upside down underwater. It's like, why are you worth more dead than alive, George Bailey? <laughs> you know, and he, he took it seriously. He says, he's right, I'm fucked. And he was gonna jump off a bridge. That's what's happening for real. That, that became the future of all yeah. these people that had trades and crafts and were so proud of it and they were good. So if you can, you can apply your trade in show business somewhere, in the entertainment business. They need you. They need the, the, the new Star Wars movie, the guys they had do the droids were the hobbyists who built the best droids that would go around to conventions. That's right. But the, before that, they were probably building like tools or, or creating stuff with machinery because um, they were skilled and now suddenly they've been invalidated. So the only factory, in my opinion, we have left is uh, the entertainment business. And it's recession proof. So take heart. You know what I mean? It never gets smaller. It never downsizes. It only gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know. Let's hear it. Thank you. Thank you.